Welcome to STEAM Powered, where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Shelley Lesher. Shelley is an experimental nuclear physicist who is passionate about dispelling misconceptions about nuclear science and explores the relationship between nuclear science and society. She also hosts the podcast My Nuclear Life, where she delves into these themes through interviews with experts, historians, policymakers, and first-hand accounts. Join us as we talk about nuclear physics, how nuclear sciences impacts our world, and Shelley's love of shoes. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you so much for joining me on Steam Powered. It is wonderful to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's it's my pleasure. So good to you know, finally get to speak to you, especially after we you know met online. That's great. So you mentioned you had an interesting origin story, and you know you, you you're currently in nuclear physics, but that's not where you started. Yeah. So <laughs> it is kind of interesting. The students always think that you have to have known you wanted to do physics since you were small, and I grew up not thinking that. I grew up thinking I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to go into politics. That that was what I thought I was going to do. My whole family thought I was going to go to law school. And when I got to university, I started taking political science classes. But as part of, in the U.S., we have what's called general education. So if you do whatever subject you do, you have to take this core of classes around it in a whole lot of different subjects. And so I decided that, well, astronomy sounded like fun. So I was going to take, I had to take a science class. So I took astronomy and that was really interesting to me. And so I thought, well, I have to take two science classes. So I really liked the professor. So then I took physics with him and, you know, I kept taking political science classes. And, and when I talked to the physics instructor, I was just Talk to, talking to him about how I really wanted to go out to Washington, D.C. in the summer because political science, you want to be in Washington. And he thought, well, you know, I have this project that I need done in D.C., so why don't I send you out there to do this project for me? So as a freshman, you know, I'm 18, I get sent out by an astronomer to go work at the Goddard Space Flight Center in... Oh, wow. In, in DC to do yeah. this astrophysics project. And I decided that I didn't like astronomy. I didn't like astrophysics, but <laughs> I wanted to keep taking physics classes because it was really interesting to me. And so I got back and he sent me to work with um, a wonderful woman named Ani Abrahamian at the University of Notre Dame that was just down the street from where I went. And I just kept taking physics classes and kept doing physics research. And one day he just said to me, you're, you know, you have to change your major. Like you're not a political science major. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did land up graduating in physics with a uh, minor in political science and math. So, uh, <laughs> and didn't become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. yeah. They tried to introduce what they called the common first year, which was meant to reflect that general um, year at college in the US. And I always thought that was such an interesting idea because you could do things like philosophy, you could do things like astronomy and just kind of explore all these different options. And 
when they offered that option to us in the sciences, I don't know whether they tried to do this in the other departments, the common first year was just, well, if you're an engineer and you're doing, or you're doing in doing computing, then uh, your common first year is going to involve computing and a couple of engineering basic units and stuff like that. But, but that's not very broad. That's still very narrow. It's and very I narrow. couldn't see how that would be useful. I mean, it was not for my year. That was, um, I was tutoring at the time they started doing this. And it was very badly received, unsurprisingly. <laughs> so a lot of the students who were doing engineering was like, why do I have to bother with computer science? It's not important. It's like, well, you're still going to have to do some of this at some point. Like it just because, you know, it's not your major. It's not that you're not ever going to have to touch any of this stuff. But, you know, it would have been so interesting to get to do all these other broader range of subjects and just get a little bit more roundedness to what you do at uni. Yeah. And that's the idea. Now, there's arguments on on how much you need to do. So some universities <laughs> have a really, really big program. Like ours has a very big program, which I personally think it could be a little bit smaller. Um, others, others have programs that are much smaller. They're done in many, many different ways. But, yeah. you know, I think it's important for, especially for science students. I mean, of course, I think everyone should have science, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, as you were saying about computer scientists needing or engineers needing, you know, computer science or, you know, something else, I think it's important for scientists to understand how their work impacts the world. Exactly. And yeah. you don't get that just from hard science classes. And that's really been, I'm jumping ahead here, I'm sure, but, you know, <laughs> That's really been the focus of my work the last maybe five or six years, which is kind of combining that love that I had for political science and kind of that interest that I, you know, growing up, I always had an interest in history, those interests in humanities and bringing that in with science. So saying, you know, as a physicist, you don't think that, you know, history and literature and political science is important to you and impacts you. But if I can show you how to make all of those connections, then you'll start seeing the world in a different way and seeing that what you do in science impacts the world and the world impacts yes. science. Like we're all connected and you can't just learn one thing. You have to see how it intertwines. Exactly. That That is precisely, you know, why I'm doing the whole STEAM thing, because so many aspects of the arts bleeds into the sciences. It's, you know, you just can't avoid it. And all the way through history, that's been the case. Exactly. And a lot of people forget that, you know, we impact each other in so many different ways. And you don't really see, like, you look at, you just even looking at pop culture, right? So all the stuff that we see on TV and the media, you know, they're already influenced by all the sciences. Look at Star Trek, right? Influences both directions. It's, yeah, it's crazy that, you know, you, you forget just the full breadth of impact. Absolutely. And also that we have a diversity problem in physics, especially. <laughs> um, yes. Com computer science, physics, uh, 
there there are not a lot of women in either of those fields. And when you start talking about non-white individuals, there are not a lot of those rep- those those people represented in those fields either. And research has shown that if you want to attract a more diverse group of of individuals to physics or computer science, then you have to show them why they should be there. And it's not just yes. all the people who say, I, you know, since since I was young, I stared up at the stars and wondered how the universe came together. Because not everyone has that luxury, right? If you live in yeah. a, the middle of a city, you can't look up and see can't the stars. See anything. <laughs> Right. Not everyone has this education where they had this wonderful science teacher that knew physics or knew computer science and got them involved. Not everyone has that. But everyone has something that they're passionate about, whether it be a social justice issue or something involved in their neighborhood or their community that they want to bring back. And it's our job to show them how computer science and physics and chemistry and biology can be used to help them do what it is that they want to do in their lives. And we have not done that very well in the past. And I think it's our job to do that. And research has shown that when you do that, you can attract a much more diverse group of students to your field once you show them what they can do with your with the information they get instead of people thinking yeah. oh you do physics you can be a professor that's not exactly everything you can do or you do computer science um what is what is your background in computer science or engineering or uh, i did computer science uh, straight computer science and then uh i'm now basically by day a web and application developer so yeah that also wasn't exactly a thing anyway, because web and application development didn't really exist properly when I started university. So that was still emerging kind of as a field. But yeah, definitely a lot of the times like, oh, I'm going to do computer science. I want to be the next Bill Gates. I want to be the next Steve Jobs. Um, And it's like, well, there's so much more scope than that. You know, it's not just about being, you know, the multi-million billionaire. Like there's so much other scope to the applications of the work that we do that can you know, affect everywhere and everything. Yeah, you can use it to impact your community. You can use it to impact the causes that you're interested in. You can, you know, use those skills to do so much more than just create a company and sell it to some venture cap or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is that makes you money, right? Um, I mean, yeah. if you want to do that, you can, but you don't have to, you can use those skills and do so many other things. And, you know, that's, I think what you're trying to do here and what, you know, I, I'm trying to do is, you know, let students know more about what their options are and yet young people, let young people know um, what they can use science for. Exactly. And yeah, that's amazing. And we'll get back to that. (laughs) Okay. No, all good. We'll get back to that. Yeah, so you went from political science to physics. Yes. Decided astrophysics wasn't for you. No, no. And so how did you move towards nuclear physics? Uh, So I was sent to the University of Notre Dame to work with this, as I said, this wonderful woman named Ani Aparhamian. And she had more ideas than she had students. So... (laughs) She was in she was in nuclear physics. She was at the nuclear physics lab 
the nuclear structure lab. And she gave me these, this, this bunch of ideas and I chose one that I thought was interesting. And it's actually still, it, it's the project that I've gone back to. I've, I started with it. I did a couple of different things and now I've moved back to it. So I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> um, nuclei are not all spherical. In fact, most of them are not spherical. Although when you see a picture of a nucleus in your head, you see, you know, this hard center, well, the atom, right? You, you see this hard yeah. center and then you see the electrons moving around and then you just see this hard sphere in the center of the atom that is full of protons and neutrons. And so when you see that image of the atom, you think, oh, the nucleus is in the center and it's just a sphere. And in fact, nuclei are, are mostly not spherical. In fact, we, I, we haven't actually found a perfectly spherical nucleus. So they are more like, well, they take on whatever shape is going to be the most energetically feasible because they don't want to expand, they don't want to expend energy by trying to maintain some sort of shape. So whatever the shape is that is going to be um, energetically most feasible, most efficient, exactly. Um, what I look at are nuclei that are called prolate. So in Australia, you'll know they're the side, they look like a rugby football. So an American football has <laughs> these like pointed ends, but a rugby football is more rounded. Yeah. So they look like kind of like oblongs, right? So if, uh, if you kind of think about like a liquid drop model of a nucleus, so if you take a water balloon and you tie it at the end and then you hold it, and so you can imagine it's got like kind of that teardrop shape and it's full of fluid. So if you start moving it around, it's going to change shape, right? So again, it's not this rigid sphere. It's kind of this movable bag yeah, of water. It's a bit almost. more fluid. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what we're looking at is if you take this rugby football and you start spinning it, and because they're, they're nuclei, they're not going to just obey like, oh, it's here. So we're just going to spin like this, right? It can spin on different axes and yep. do, okay. Now we know they spin. We can definitely see that they spin. The question is, while they're spinning, are they actually vibrating? So are they actually doing this? Oh. And are they actually doing this? That's, That's cool. the question. Bohr, <laughs> Bohr Modelson won their Nobel Prize in 1975 for predicting this in, the, the, in their model. But there has been great debate on if it, if it happens or not. In fact, it was, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. I mean, it's been going on for, I mean, I was born in 1975, so I'm giving away my age. But I, <laughs> I'm working on a problem that won the Nobel Prize the year I was born. So nuclear yeah. physics is a very old field that is dealing with very um, mature, uh, basic problems. So once, I mean, it, 
the more kind of like sexy problems are not the nucleus. It's not the protons and neutrons, right? You got to go in the nucleus. You got to go in the protons and neutrons. You got to go in the quarks, right? So you get further and further and further in until you're looking at, you know, the gluons. You're looking at the Higgs. And now you're looking at, oh, we're not even looking at particles anymore. We're just looking at waves. So that's what people think are like, ooh, sexy and new and Nobel Prize worthy. What I'm doing is not yep. Nobel Prize worthy. It's basic <laughs> research on what is the shape and structure of the building blocks of matter. That's cool. That's why I think that it's cool. is very cool, though. It is cool because, you know, it is foundational stuff, but it's, it's cool because it's foundational stuff and it's exactly. foundational stuff that we don't know yet. That's exactly. awesome. And, and what, what always fascinated me is how is there a problem that is this old in something that's so foundational and we're still arguing about it? <laughs> we, we still have journal articles. Like it go, everything in physics or everything in, in everything goes in cycles, right? Yes. So, okay. So this is the problem I started working on in, in undergrad. <laughs> And, uh, sorry, my, my conversations are not linear. Um, That's fine. This is okay. cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I started working with Ani and I knew nothing about nuclear physics. And, and you know, I'm sure y you understand how it is that people learn. Um, but, you know, any young people out there, this people think that you just get told something once and you suddenly like miraculously understand what's going on. Um, I don't learn that way. I don't expect anyone <laughs> else to learn that way. And poor Ani um, had to put <laughs> up with me. I would ask her a question. So this is how I learned nuclear physics as a, a, a sophomore in college, because I had just had modern physics. I just learned what the nucleus was. I just learned what protons and neutrons were. And now I'm like, wait, what? They're not spheres? They're not, they're not spheres? <laughs> like, what's going on? So I had a question. I lived a I, lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait until you tell people about the speed of light. Um, <laughs> that kept me up for a night. And then in grad school, they tell me that it's not a constant after all. And then that was like know, a whole other story. Um, so I would go and ask her a question and she'd give me an answer and I'd say, okay, okay. I'd go back and I'd do some reading and I'd think about it some more. And then I'd come back and I'd ask her pretty much the same question. <laughs> With a few more details here and there, because I had done some more research, I might have like framed it a different way. And then she'd answer it again, give me more information. <laughs> and this would go on and on and on until I finally understood the question I was asking. And bless her for being so patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, that's how you learn. You, you, you don't yes. understand it the second someone tells you you don't like miraculously understand this really complex question because someone tells you the answer once yeah and also it's about like they'll answer you in a way that suits the frame that you gave it but at the same time because you're learning your frame isn't exactly solid <laughs> you're right. going on what yeah, you're going on what you think you understand from it. So, which is why when you went away, did a bit of research, came back, asked the same question, but with a bit more context, and you're just keeping 
continuing to build on that until you finally develop this other structure for the question that you actually needed to ask. Exactly. And, you know, I'm so glad that she understood what I was doing <laughs> and that she made me feel so comfortable or I just didn't have any sense of, I don't know, shame, but yeah, that that I could come back to her time and time again and ask the same question. I was so comfortable with her. And I yes. really remember that. And I try to do that with my students as well. And I tell them to do that and that I've done that to, to hopefully they come back over and over. So anyway, I started working with her. I really enjoyed this problem. I felt like I was actually starting to understand something. But um, one day I was in the lab and this was at a time where everyone didn't have their own computers. You had computer clusters. I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. those times. And so everybody yes. like hung out. <laughs> hung out in one spot with like 10 computers and everybody hung out anyway. So I, I couldn't sleep because I wanted to work on my, my research. And so I got in really early in the morning and I was working and I was so engrossed in my problem that by the time I looked up, it like the whole day had passed. I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't done anything. It had been like six or seven hours and, you know, I hadn't gone to lunch. I hadn't gone to the restroom. I hadn't done anything. I had just been so in like engrossed in what I was doing. And I thought, huh, like I can do this for the, like, this is what I want to do because <laughs> I'm so interested in this that I didn't even notice how much time had passed. And isn't that really what you want to do in life? Yeah. Yeah. Just completely, you know, just so involved in the things like, yeah, this is a thing that engages me. Exactly. So I decided that if I wanted to do research, I had to go to graduate school. I don't I don't like physics classes. Like I didn't enjoy <laughs> them. I didn't look forward to them. I didn't necessarily have the best grades in any of them. I was an experimentalist. I liked doing experiments. I liked analyzing data. I liked that part. And I, I was good at that. Um, and that's what got me through graduate school. But I decided that I would keep doing physics and I would keep doing nuclear physics until it wasn't fun anymore. And that was always the kind of test that I had for myself. And I'm just like, okay, I'll go to graduate school. If it's not fun, I can leave. Okay, I'll do a postdoc. If it's not fun, I'll leave. I'll just so I mean I just keep saying that to myself, and still like it's, <laughs> it's still fun. But if it stops being fun, then I'm gonna go do something else. So that's it. Just kept being fun, so I just kept doing it. That's a good way of doing it. <laughs> I mean, and I'll tell you, I hated my classes, so the classes weren't fun. But I had the research there. So when I went to graduate school, I started research immediately because this project that I was given, I got a paper, uh, I got a first author paper before I even nice. graduated. So that got That's me cool. into grad school and that got me into doing more research. And so I had that research all through graduate school that kept me motivated. So I'm like, okay, I have to do the classes because I know I can do the research. And so if I hadn't had the research, I probably would have left graduate school. Yes. Yeah. It just wasn't no the motivation. There was no motivation. Exactly. And the classes weren't fun. Um, so and then after that, I wanted to leave the country. I wanted to go to Europe for a postdoc because 
Ani took me to France for an experiment, and I love to travel. I've I've always loved to travel, um, and it made me realize that nuclear physics you can travel all over the world in to yeah, do nuclear physics <laughs> <laughs> because there's accelerators all over. Um, and so I went to um, uh, I went to Belgium. I went to live in Belgium to do a postdoc. And the majority of my work was done um, at CERN. So I spent a nice. lot of time at CERN, which I think a lot of people know. It was it was a time where the U.S. hadn't bought in yet. So there weren't I don't I think I was the only American in like wow. the part of the building that I was. The the super collider hadn't wasn't like started up yet. So it was it was a truly European experience to be at the Wonderful. at CERN during that time. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it was it was super cool. Uh, then I did another postdoc at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a um, weapons lab in the U.S. I didn't do weapons work, but it 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 is one of our weapons lab. Los Alamos is is another one, um, and I decided that. I, it, it was fine, but it was research only, and it wasn't research. It, you're kind of told what research to do. You can't really choose your own project. Um, and I wanted to go back and work on the nuclear prop, the, the nucleus, the, the, the vibrational nuclei again. So yeah. I, uh, and I really missed students. Just students bring so much life and it keeps you young. And I just felt like. <laughs> liver like it would have yeah it's yeah, yeah. for you it, it just wasn't it, the right space right for me it was not the right space it is the right space for a lot of people I just for me I need to be in a university so I landed up coming to the university I'm at and so I've been here for 12 years I'm at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse and this this year I just became full professor so I'm now like nice congratulations as high as I can be <laughs> Oh, and I just became chair too. So I'm like as high as Excellent. I can be. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, yeah. that's great. <laughs> yeah. Without being like provost or like something fancy, like some sort of administration <laughs> fancy. That's cool. So yeah. because you wanted to work on the nucleus again, uh, did you have to find a university that was in that space or did you just like, how did you find a place where you could go, I want to study this and this is what I'm going to do? That's a really good question. Um, I looked at places that were similar to the school that I went to. So in the U.S., we have different types of universities. Um, there's what's called an R1. It's a research-heavy institution, which are all the universities you've heard of. Yale, Harvard, MIT. These all have PhD programs. They all have like millions and millions of dollars of research funding coming in. The professors there just do research. They probably teach maybe one class a semester, maybe one class a wow. year. Yeah. And then they do a lot of work with research, with graduate students. They have postdocs, like they have teams of people. Um, that's not what I wanted. I wanted a school like I went to, which was, they're called primarily undergraduate institutions. And there are institutions in between the two that I'm talking about. Um, so at the institution I'm at, you're, 
you teach more. So instead of teaching one class a semester, I teach three classes a semester. And I do have a, re I do do research, but um, for example, if you're at one of these big research institutions and you don't get funding, then you, you get fired, right? Like, tenure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. At my institution, <laughs> if I don't get funding, it's okay. I can still do my research. I just don't get paid in the summer. So it's, it's a different expectation. The expectation, though, is that I work with students in research. Whether it's funded or not is up to me. And cool. that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with students, and I wanted to make a difference in students' lives. And I've been lucky in that I have been funded since I've been there. So I have been very successful in getting research grants that fund me and fund my students. And we uh, are able to actually, we go back to the University of Notre Dame in the summer and we still work with Ani Aprahamian, my undergraduate nice. um, research advisor. And we work with her every summer, still working on trying to figure out if uh, these rare earth nuclei vibrate. Um, <laughs> And just got a big grant to build a, a detector array that my students cool. and I are going to this summer. So they're they're actually taking us this summer. Uh, they lifted some COVID restrictions, so we're going to be able to go. Excellent. Yeah, it's really that's exciting. very cool. Yeah, so I'm taking three students with me, and so that's pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so that's why I decided to go because I have a lot more student interaction. Um, yeah. At, at the university I'm at, which I I. I really enjoy the the interaction. That's great. And yeah, because it is, you know, more focus on the students. Yeah, obviously that gives you the flexibility to choose what area of research you want to pursue because it's absolutely optional whether you actually get the funding so you can pursue that. That's cool. Yeah. So with the I guess with the okay, we're not gonna go into great detail about this, obviously, but with the vibrations, is this is what's been preventing people from having a solid answer just because we don't have the technology to figure it out yet? You're you're on the right track. One of the reasons <laughs> physics one of the reasons physics goes in cycles is because you know when the problem was first introduced, we we had the theory, and we had some experimental apparatus, and we had some computational abilities. But those were limited. And then they kind of went as far as they could. And then it cycled back around because now we have better detectors. We have better computational abilities. But then it hit a, it hit a standstill again because, you know, we couldn't push it any further. And that's one yeah. of the reasons we're building this new array is because now we found – we figured out a, a, a new way to – to figure to to kind of probe a different way, and so we're building a new detector, and so this is one of the things I really like about nuclear physics is that you can look at a paper from decades ago, and you can improve upon it, and maybe their conclusion was wrong, maybe they didn't have great resolution, um, but you can still use it as kind of a basis to a, a touchstone yeah. to go off of. I mean, there might be one or two things wrong, but you're not going to go back to a paper from five years ago and go, Oh, that's completely wrong. Like, you do, <laughs> like you do in astronomy. I mean, in astronomy, a five-year-old paper can be completely out of date 
and just like <laughs> trash. And so it's like, I have no idea in astronomy what paper I should believe and what paper I can't. But in nuclear, sorry, it's my dog. That's good. In, <laughs> in nuclear, you can, uh, you, you have this really nice timeline of, and, and you can see this exactly. You can see this timeline of when technology and computing power gets better. And then there's this like, you get a massive experimental data and then you get tons of theory that comes out because all the theorists are like, oh, let me try to explain everything you just saw. And then there's kind <laughs> of a lull and then, you know, we get better with technology and then big burst comes out and then there's this yeah. more. So, you know, one the one of the reasons we haven't seen it is because what we're trying to find is very difficult. We're trying to to look at a vibration that when you see it is doing this. Okay, so see how hard that is yeah. to, to observe. It's, it's very subtle, especially a, when you're looking at the scale. Yes, as well. so it's a very yeah. subtle vibration. We have seen this one. So you can see this one is a very... Uh, it's more distinct. Thank you. <laughs> it's a very distinct <laughs> vibration. The other the other one is, is very subtle and there is um, great debate over what conclusively tells you it exists and what doesn't the yeah. original theory doesn't actually say what they think uh, you know like <laughs> doesn't give numbers um so yeah that's what the, that's where the great debate is and then of course if it's not that then what is what are these anomalies that we're seeing if it's not you know what we call a vibration then what are you observing like what are you observing because yeah. you're observing something um, and, and then of course everything vibrates. Uh, so why aren't yes. nuclear, why aren't nuclei vibrating then? Logically so, it should. <laughs> it should. So, uh, you know, the, the, to me, this is a fundamental question that we still don't understand. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's fun to, to look at it. That is very cool. Yeah. I can see how that really engages you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So much subtlety in, you know, what you can you know, observe and develop from that. And that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Just yeah. adding more confirmation to what we already know. It's very cool. Yeah. So, you know, so that was your research part. Now yep. your teaching part is again, you know, we'll get back to this, the effective nuclear science in society and how it really does impact us. Right. So, you know, you've already mentioned that this is interesting to you because of the importance of being able to understand the context of what we do and how it affects everyone else. So when you designed this course, what did you have in mind for your objectives? Because these are already students who are in these, in who are in nuclear science, or is this part of the, uh, the general first year? Yeah. So it's part of this general education curriculum. And what I envisioned this class to be did not turn out to what this class actually became. <laughs> um, and my podcast has kind of turned out to be what I thought this class should have been. Uh, so what I wanted the class to be was to teach kind of a general public why they shouldn't be scared of nuclear physics. Uh, but th that's not how it turned out. How, 
How it turned out was everyone not in physics was scared to take a physics class. <laughs> even if it had no prerequisites. And even though it says like no math, no prereqs, like counts as like, <laughs> like it, it doesn't matter. So, so nobody outside of physics wanted to take it. <laughs> so you're speaking, you're preaching to the choir at this point. <laughs> right. So then it turned out to be, okay, it's basically now physics students, um, but they need this gen ed, it's called like global society. So now I have to say, okay, um, I have to now show, show these physics students how nuclear science impacts the global world. So I had to kind of like change the 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 bent a little. I mean, and, and yeah, it's kind of ironic that I'm trying to teach people about not being afraid of nuclear science and I can't even get them to sign up for the class. So that kind of like, I mean, that's the first hurdle. Proves right? the point, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it landed up being, you know, teaching students in physics about, you know, we start out with, um, the nuclear bomb, like how the nuclear bomb was developed, because as a physicist, it is a amazing, amazing scientific achievement. The result is, is horrendous. Yeah. But looking at the speed at which it was built, looking yes. at the money that was spent, looking at how scientists were, I mean, they were giving unlimited resources and you know any scientist is just gonna like unlimited resources like they didn't even have to, they didn't have to write proposals they didn't have to do anything they yeah. just had to ask for it and they got it like yeah. that immediately you know you're you're taken to this out of the way place and your whole job is just to solve this one problem you don't have to worry about anything that is like a dream for, for that a scientist. That is a dream for the scientist. <laughs> um, so that is, you know, kind of where you start out because, you know, it's kind of like this ideological place. But then you have mm. to start talking about, but what, you know, what was their motivation? And then what's what the, is the end impact product? of your work? Yeah. Then what's the impact of your work? So we go to firsthand accounts of, the scientists that work there um, and, you know, what they were feeling. We set the stage for what was America like at the time, because it's definitely not our multiracial, um, diverse place. I mean, with all its problems, it's definitely not the place that, that it is now, yeah. or even, you know, Australia was not the place it is now. Uh, the world just was not the place it is now back in, yes. you know, the forties. And then that sets the stage to understand how the U.S. felt it was okay to drop this weapon on Japan. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, well, first we talk about all the fire bombings because fire bombing had destroyed Japan in the first place. So, you know, kind of to put it in context. But what the students... You could see the escalation. Exactly. Exactly. What the students really find um, shocking is 
we actually, you know, it's this global impacts class. And so we spend some time on the ground in Japan. So I have them read firsthand accounts of the survivors of the bomb. I have them watch movies that were made um, about the bomb, like um, Japanese cinema that reflects the time period of you know uh, what what the the general population was was feeling you know in the decades after and how they reflected back on the bomb um yeah movies that show you know the survivors and speaking about their because it's different when you read it and when you hear someone speaking about it so yeah. i have them kind of experience what it was like on the ground a little bit like try to get that point across because in the u.s you learn we dropped the bomb we won the war and then we move on to something else like you just you don't even give a second thought to after that yes it, it's just state fact move on no discussion about the consequences or what actually happened afterwards right but i mean i think everyone's history is right is like that like whatever country you live in your your history is is country-centric um, it is, you know, you just want to tell about all of your, your glories and none of your, um, you know, bad things. Atrocities. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, yeah. every country has their share of atrocities. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's really what the students at the end of the semester, when I, I ask students, name one thing you're going to take away from this class. And so many of them take, say that they're going to take away the the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Which which has always surprised me because keep in mind, we're talking about science students, all these science students who don't understand why we have to take history and don't understand why we have to take, you know, literature and all of these gen ed classes. The one thing they take away is something that isn't physics. And yeah, and it's, that's the important part. Like they, it is. they need to have that context and they need to understand what they're doing because, you know, when you're presented with that, you know, you're presented with the moral dilemma. There's a, uh, there's a meme that went around. Uh, it was about, you know, have you ever, oh, I'm going to have to look it up. But the joke was that, you know, as a scientist, have you ever just wanted to break bad and just, you know, be evil? Yes. Because, yeah. Because there's a whole thing where, you know, someone throws money at you and says, you know, a villain will kidnap you and say, you know, build this bomb for me. You know, you could just, you know, build a glitter machine. They won't know. They don't understand anyway. But someone else said, yeah, but they're giving you money. When are you ever going to get that kind of grant funding again? <laughs> so true. And yeah. And so it's, it's that joke. Like say, you know, you could go evil, but you're not going to. But at the same time, it's the whole, the pursuit of science. There's that very fine line between good and evil and what you're going to use your mm -hmm. research for and what people are going to use your research for. Exactly. And you look at a lot of the developments in science and technology, a lot of that was funded by defense Yeah. in yeah. various countries. So clearly they had military applications in mind when all of this first began and it's just grown in scope. And, you know, this is a huge problem right now in computer science that and, and I think the, the field is is trying to deal with it. You know, how do you teach students in CS ethics? Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, they don't think about it. And I mean, they're students. They're 
you know, 1920, you know, they want to build some company, sell it and be a millionaire before they turn 30, you know, but how do you teach them, you know, okay, fine. They want to do it. They're okay doing it. But how do you teach them that, you know, you probably should think about the applications of your work before you do it, Yeah. you know, so you continue and you do it. Okay. But have you thought about the implications of that beforehand? And are you yeah. okay contributing to that technology? Um, and and I know there's a lot of debate and and questioning and and going around in the U.S. around you know a lot of things that have happened at Google um, and in programs. You know how do you bring that sort of curriculum into a computer science department? Because yes, you you can't rely on this general education to do it for you. you. You have to have these very specific computer science ethics classes, but then who's yeah, going to develop and, them? And who's going to develop them and who's going to take them unless you force them to? You're going to have to force them to take it. It's going to have to be part yeah. of your curriculum because yeah, they're not going to take them if they don't have to. And you know, to, to me, that's what, a, that that's what, so like your first year common experience in Australia would have worked. I think if you would have said, okay, you have to take, you know, history of, you know, like your history class is going to be about the history of, of computation and computer science. Okay. Yeah. You'd say, okay, maybe I don't think I need to know it, but at least it's useful. Okay. Or I don't think it's useful, but okay, maybe it's interesting. You know, an ethics <laughs> class that has to do with computer science. You know, you could you could take a literature class that has to do with, you know, um, science fiction, right? So you could, yeah. like, cover all these topics, but make them interesting to scientists. Yeah. Like, you exactly. It's not just going to be a whole, think this is how you be good and evil. This is how you decide between good and evil. It's like, well, it's not just that. It's not that simple. It's, exactly. You know, there's, there's a lot of gray, and that's the problem. We need to teach about the gray. And I, and I think part of that is teaching empathy. And that's what I think a lot of these classes are, are I, I think that's kind of the point of a lot of these gen ed classes, right? If you learn about people and cultures, then you're going to have empathy towards people and cultures. Yeah. So I think that's it's what not they're so trying anonymous. to Yeah. Right. Right. And it, Right, like teaching the the students about the survivors of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They actually now know what happened, so they have empathy for what happens to people after the bomb. And then they think, oh my god, if, yeah. I'm, ever, if I'm ever in a position, there's no way I would advocate for using a nuclear weapon. Yeah, Maybe and... one of them will be in a position at one point in their lives where, you know, they they are in a position to use a nuclear weapon. Yeah. And it's not even just nuclear weapons, like any kind of yeah. technology or science endeavor that we have, because any of it can be used for any kind of purposes. Exactly. And I, I do this exercise sometimes with my students. I'm like, okay, just name something that you think is good that's been developed. And they tell me something. I'm like, great. And then I give them the bad side to it. And they're like, like everything oh. they can name me, <laughs> I can tell them the evil side to it. And they're just like, Air, you know, like airplanes, it's like they deliver bombs, like they deliver the nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bad side to it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, <laughs> like everything. Yeah, exactly. 
I think the problem is, though, is that nuclear science, the bad side was shown before any of the good sides. Yeah, and nobody gets to have that perspective because, yeah, it's all about the bomb. It's about uh, nuclear power plants that fail. And, you know, in popular culture, that's what we see. That's what we hear about. Simpsons, exactly. you know, movies, it's all those, that's all we know about it. So, you know, what else does nuclear science impact in our lives? <sighs> Everything. Everything. So, <laughs> whole podcast about it. Um, <laughs> so, for example, um, the the people who the scientists who built the bomb were also the fiercest critics of it, and they actually started all the campaigns to end the bomb and to start a nuclear free world. So they were actually the first kind of um, human rights advocates against the bomb. So they started all of those movements. When you look at the scientists who have won Nobel Peace Prizes, the majority of them have been physicists. And in fact, they've been nuclear physicists because of their work with the bomb. So yeah, they brought it into the world, but they're also trying to, to, to take it out. Um, yeah. So it, it impacts human rights in that way. But another human right um, part is nuclear energy. So you mentioned that we see it in the bad light. And that is true because you see it when a nuclear reactor explodes like it did in Chernobyl or releases gas like it did or releases the isotopes like it did in Fukushima. But you know that doesn't count the hundreds of nuclear reactors that are producing energy all over the world at any given time. France has, you know, 90% of their power comes from nuclear and don't hear anything about them. Yeah. Um, I didn't look up how much of Australia's power comes from nuclear energy. I, I honestly have no idea, but we are fairly dependent on uh, oil, coal, gas, all the natural resources. Cause I think, I, I don't even know if we have uranium. You Australia. do. Um, we do? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Good um, to know. <laughs> uh, but as I was saying about human rights, there are the the way that you improve a country's, uh, or I'm sorry, the way that you improve people's lives is by giving them electricity. It's been, I mean that that can't be debated, and how are you going to get electricity to small communities in the middle of nowhere? Um, there, I mean, people are trying with solar pa panels. If there's no water around, it's really hard to get sort of hydro or um, it's really hard to get um, specific conditions for wind yeah. farms and, you know, all right. that. they're all very conditional. Yeah, all of those are very conditional, but they, I mean, people are working on these micro reactors that can be put in small villages to give them um, power. And by, you know, like I said, giving a community power, you then give them access to the world, which you then improve their living conditions. And as far as human rights go, that's one of the human rights that people talk about is improving people's conditions. And, um, nuclear power does have that ability. Um, so that's one of the ways that, that nuclear can impact the world. But uh, some of the things that are, are kind of non-controversial, because I know nuclear <laughs> power is very controversial, 
Um, <laughs> the probably the the biggest impact that nuclear science has made and has nuclear science has actually saved more lives than it is has taken, uh, regardless of whatever statistic you look at, and that is through nuclear medicine. And we are able to look inside people using MRIs and NMRs, and we're able to diagnose issues, including um, heart problems uh, and brain issues with those um, technologies. We're able to use radiopharmaceuticals to um, see how um, it, that we can diagnose uh, different conditions. And then we were able to use um, radionuclides to treat conditions as well. Not to mention, if you have anyone who's gone through cancer treatment, then of course radiation therapy is a nuclear procedure as well. So all of those things, and then of course PET scans, I mean, all of those things yeah. are all nuclear processes. And so many of them were done in research labs before they ever made it to hospitals. In fact, one of the most um, promising treatments right now for cancer is called proton therapy. And it uses a cyclotron to produce protons. And we've been using cyclotrons to make protons in nuclear physics research for decades. It's just finally yeah. been uh, brought into the, the, the medical field. Yeah, and it's all just extensions on existing technology that's been in use. Exactly. Uh, we do do a really good job of hiding all the nuclear processes in hospitals because, because of, of the, the way, <laughs> yeah, because of the fear that people have. They, I think it's getting better because there's so many of them now. You just cannot hide it. You cannot hide that that you're giving people technetium ninety nine, like you just technetium ninety nine M, like you just you can't hide it. So I think people are getting more and more familiar with it, but. You know, at first you had to tell people that an MRI was, you know, it wasn't a nuclear process. I mean, you're not taking a radioisotope, so in that way it's not a nuclear process, but it does use nuclear um, theory to yes to go about it. And, you know, we were using it in research before it came into the hospital. So yeah. that's probably the biggest impact that nuclear has had. Yeah. And yeah, that's incredible. And it's just because of that psychological barrier, it's so hard to be transparent about a lot of these things because as soon as they hear the word nuclear, that's the first, those are the first things that they think about. And they Absolutely. don't understand that there's other potential applications for the same science. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many little things that nuclear is involved in. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just, it's so embedded in our culture in good and bad ways. I mean, um, the the bikini is is named because of nuclear physics um do you know this story no the bikini tell me about this how so, does this work <laughs> <laughs> the um the, the nuclear tests were going on uh, the the nuclear weapons tests in the u.s were going on in the pacific atoll of bikini the bikini atoll yes and the the pair the paris fashion designer was just making his his uh, new swimsuit and because of the fanfare going on around the bikini tests he decided to name his new swimsuit the bikini <laughs> that's amazing purely marketing that's awesome yep 
I think there was something <laughs> like because it's just as scandalous or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. No publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, all the comic books, all the movies. I mean, how many movies are there about, you know, nuclear subs, you know, Hunt for Red October, yes. K-29. I mean, there's all these movies. How many movies from the 80s are you know, involve who's the bad guy in every 80s movie? Yes. Well, that was the Cold War stuff. So everything was revolving around nuclear and the Cold War. And yeah, yeah, all the politics around that. Yep. I mean, that's all nuclear. So, I mean, okay, I'm not really proving my point that nuclear isn't bad because the whole Cold War <laughs> thing is bad. <laughs> but uh, the point is that it impacts our lives. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to see how much it impacts our lives because if it wasn't yeah. for the nuclear bomb, it's hard to believe we would have, we would have had a cold war um, or, you know, because it, it was definitely that race to outdo the Soviets in different ways. Um, and all of that, it drives everything else. It drives, yeah, it drives immediately popular culture. It drives the media, it drives literature and art. And because it makes us think all of these atrocities and all of the ways that it can be used in a bad way is what makes people think and create for the other things, yep. which is why it does impact what we do and who we are. Yep. It also greatly impacted our space program. I mean, there's questions on how much the U.S. would have invested in the space program if it wasn't for nuclear weapons, because um, we wanted to get our nuclear weapons on missiles. And what is getting a man to moon? It's just creating a good a missile. A giant missile. <laughs> so, you know, you can hide all this money that you're spending on, you know, missiles on this dual use technology in a program that the whole public is for because they want to get a man to the moon. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so sneaky yeah. too. Like, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so many different ways. And. I mean, props to all of them for thinking about all these novel ways of being able to apply the science. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you might be interested in, in, a, in a few weeks, I have a podcast episode coming out on all the different ways, on all the different songs around nuclear bombs. Oh, that's cool. That would be awesome. So it's like 50 years of nuclear bomb songs. Like all the That's different amazing. ways, like all the different songs that have, have been influenced by, um, you know, and, and, and by nuclear bombs and by the protests and by, you know, the fear of it. And then, you oh, know, yeah, how, definitely. how they've changed over time from, you know, the optimism of the, the early days to then the Cold War and the fear. Yes. You're right. Like, it's something that just... It makes people create because of all the feelings that it brings up. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is a symbol. That mushroom cloud is a symbol yes. that around the world people know. People know what it means. And it people have an opinion, right? <laughs> yes. I don't think there's anyone that's just like, eh, it's a cloud. Like, it's Exactly. No one's indifferent about it. And... 
whether you're old enough to understand or not, it's what's taught to you and you're taught about the context and the nuance about it and it's yeah, whether or not how close you are to where that became, you know, something that everybody knew about, you're still going to have an opinion, you're still going to have thoughts about what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I will say what I, what I hope to accomplish <laughs> is yes. that we should not be as scared uh, about yeah. radiation and radiation exposure as kind of the media plays it up. Um, we're really not in danger of dying from cancer due to radiation exposure that, um, that the papers and the, the, the media makes you think you are. Um, and you know, that's one of the myths that I, I'd like to, to see go away. I can understand people being scared of a nuclear bomb. I'm definitely on that boat, but, um, (laughs) You're, you're not in danger of getting cancer because you went on a flight or you went to Chernobyl for a few days or things like that. Like those, you need a really a lot of radiation to, to get sick or die from it in that way. And I think people are just I mean, you should have a healthy respect for radiation. Like, I'm not going to go and like lick a source. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reduce the exposure that I have as much as I possibly can. But yes. I'm, but I'm not. You can still go about and live your life. Exactly. Yeah, you can still go about and do things, and like with most other things, it's just being a bit more aware, a bit more conscientious about how you conduct yourself. Right. And yeah, and it's not just like this radiation everywhere anyway. And it's no, not nuclear radiation. We're, we're surrounded by radiation. Exactly. And that's kind of the really cool, it's it's the new thing that um, we're able to do now in research is um, there's this new field. Well, is, I mean, it's not that new, but um, it's called nuclear astrophysics. And have you ever wondered how all the elements in the universe came to be? Big bang. <laughs> No, turns out. No. <laughs> um, uh, so the field of nuclear astrophysics sets out to f- figure this out, to figure out where all the elements and all the isotopes came from. And some of them are from the Big Bang. Some of them are from supernova. Some of them are from clouds. Like, But they're not all from the same place. And there's some that we can't no. figure out where they came from. And it's not just where they started, but it's how much started, how much did we start with? And then you have to then forward that model to how much we have now. Yep. Um, and so, you know, one of your previous guests was saying that, you know, you take a, you take in astronomy or astrophysics, you take a snapshot in time and that's all you yeah. have and you have to work around that. And that's the same thing that we do. So w- when we do an experiment on earth, we know what that information is here on earth. And then we have to use our models to try to take that back in time. What we have the advantage of in nuclear physics is that we know half-lives. And so we know how long we can take that back. Um, And so there's a new accelerator being built in the United States that's going to be able to measure more of these um, very radioactive 
isotopes and we're going to be able to try to start solving this um, this puzzle a little bit that's more. That's very cool. So, I mean, that's really kind of neat. And, you know, usually I like problems that have an answer. This one, um, you know, is just a really <laughs> big puzzle that I don't know when we're ever going to be able to solve it. But it it is a nice uh, thought provoking question of, you know, kind of where do we come from? And, you know, that's why science is so much fun, is that if you want a very philosophical question to answer, <laughs> science will give you that, right? You want it this will. thought experiment, science can give you that. If you want a very practical question that you can answer, how do I cure cancer? Science can give you that too. Yeah, uh, and for many different aspects too. Every science can answer that question: How do I cure cancer? Because it takes them all, right? You yeah. need chemistry and biology, but you also need physics to help. I mean, someone's got to build you that machine, and it <laughs> it, it ain't that simple. <laughs> it's very very cool. Yeah. So, yeah, with the podcast, yeah, you've got the full range of kinds of guests talking about the way that you know nuclear science impacts us and it's cool that you know you're going to be able to answer some of these questions for people who aren't already sold on the idea of nuclear science <laughs> well i think a lot of people who listen to the podcast are already involved in nuclear in some way i think <laughs> so perhaps i'm also speaking to the choir there too i'm not sure we'll, we'll see we'll find out but still yeah definitely i mean anthropolo uh, anthropologically speaking super interesting because yeah as we've discussed a lot of impact a lot yeah. of areas that are touched and yeah it's very cool i am enjoying hearing the clips that i've been listening that i've listened to have been able to listen to all of it i uh, know it's so it's hard to listen <laughs> to a whole bunch of things at once i've got a lot of stuff queued on my on my podcast as well but you know the podcast kind of goes about what i wanted to do with my class in the first place which was inform a general audience about things yeah. that I, I love and about how nuclear science connects with the world. Uh, and it's a great excuse for me to contact people that yes. could can answer <laughs> all the questions I've ever had and yeah. talk to them. And so, I mean, that's kind of the best part about it is that I'm learning along with my audience. And I have like years of questions that students have asked me that I haven't been able to answer that now I get to ask the experts, which that's yeah, amazing. Makes it sound like I have all these really great questions and some of them are <laughs> mine, but so many of them are just questions <laughs> students ask that I'm like, well, I don't really know that. And so now the expert comes on and I'm like, well, you know, I have this great question. <laughs> Very astute. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's just a great excuse for me to learn more, which yeah, uh, you know, as 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 scientists, we're we're always wanting to learn more and to continue our education in different ways. Um, yeah, and I I Definitely. like bringing people along with me and 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 helping them learn about different stuff too. Definitely, yeah, because there's just so much that we don't know, and there there's is. so many interesting things that you hear about, and you go. They didn't go into any detail on that. I would like to know more about what they just said. <laughs> yeah, and we have these medium now, right? Um, podcast and, and, and YouTube allows us, you know, just normal people to explore 
these areas of interest to us and then share them with the world. And I think that's exactly. great. And, you know, the to me, the good thing that's come out of COVID is this ability. So if it wasn't for COVID and being locked in, I would have never started my podcast. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, people are locked in their house and they're bored and they're not traveling. And it's really, <laughs> I don't know how many of these experts I would have been able to get on the podcast if they were. If they know, also they, went trapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, because we all have these crazy schedules and I haven't flown. I haven't been anywhere outside of my house for over a year now. And I'm sure a lot of other people are the same way. And yeah, I don't know how many experts I would have been able to to find if yeah if we were all traveling um and i certainly wouldn't have had the motivation to do it if i wasn't locked because <laughs> i would have been traveling and then you know for every week you travel you have like three weeks of work to catch up on so exactly. know, i never would have had the time yeah definitely it all it's just a great opportunity it presented itself at an annoying time <laughs> yeah Okay, so we'll move on to some of those soft questions so I can okay. get going and enjoy the rest of the evening. <laughs> okay, so what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? So this one's hard because most of my interests are related to my field of work. Um, I do love to travel, but that's mostly work. And when I do travel for fun, <laughs> When I do travel for fun, I travel to places that are interesting to work. Like I went to Chernobyl, um, which is related to work. Um, the last place I traveled that wasn't for work, I visited some family in Poland. So that <laughs> that was fun. Um, but related to that, when I travel, I do like to go shopping and that has made me start a shoe. I, I like shoes. So I guess that's a hobby. <laughs> I buy shoes. Yes, and that's a hobby. I actually brought my two favorite pairs for you. Oh, excellent. Show me. <laughs> so this is my newest pair. Oh, very nice. Fleabogs. Yes. Fleabogs are the best. Oh. I've been eyeing these forever, um, but in Germany, I found this lovely pair. Oh, very nice. That's very cool. Yes. I realize they both oh, have the same heel. heel. Yes. I know. I do like that heel. It's a very stable heel. <laughs> it's a stable heel, but it's a slightly, you know, different than just a chunk. Yes. So yep. these were the shoes I bought in Germany. So. I do like shopping for shoes because the Germans have the best shoes, by the way. They're like functional, but they're kind of cool. Um, yes. Yeah. They they really have their function and fashion meshed pretty well. So I buy a lot they of shoes really when do. I'm in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent. But yeah, so that's, that's my most unrelated work hobby. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, it costs a lot of money, but I, I do enjoy it. It does. Yes. Okay. And which book holds the strongest memories for you? Or which childhood book? Yeah, this one was hard because I don't really have like a book when I was little that holds the most memories for me. But 
I have like this series of books. So my mom had a series of the Nancy Drew series of books. I don't. Um, so Nancy she had good. them when she was a kid. And it's like the first books that I remember reading when I was small. And cool. I was really small because I just started reading really young and I read a lot. Um, wow. But I remember reading them when I was really small and I really liked them because it was like it was a puzzle. Right. And yeah. I realized. So I said that I, I wasn't a <laughs> physicist like growing up, but looking you back. You a problem solver. <laughs> exactly. Looking back, I realized I did a lot of physics-y things, but no yeah. one was there to tell me they were physics-y things. Um, so if I had a parent who was a physicist, then I probably would have been told I was doing physics-y things. But, you know, my parents weren't scientists and, and they were just like, oh, you're just inquisitive or, you know, oh, you like to solve problems or, oh, you like to read or, oh, you like taking things apart. Like, you know, that's just, I, oh, or, you know, you're good at math. Like, but it wasn't oh, you're doing engineering physics stuff. It was just, you know, oh, yeah. you're doing... Ex it's just, it's, it's... You're just curious. You're just... Yeah, yeah. You're, you're just a curious kid. Um, so it's really interesting how, you know, just because you don't think you were interested in something doesn't mean you weren't. It's just the people didn't point it out to you. They pointed out other things, like... Yeah. Oh, you're good at reading or, oh, you're good at literature. Oh, you should go into this or, oh, you should go into that. Because when I was in high school, I was told I wasn't good in science. I was told I wasn't good in these things. I mean, I actually got a C in high school physics. So like it's, yeah, just do whatever the hell you want. Don't let other people, you know, tell you what you're good at. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, some of those things where you only get exposed to the things that other people have had exposure to. Yeah. So you, yeah, you don't know, like you don't know what exists no. out beyond your immediate sphere. Cool. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? What advice they should ignore? Anyone who tells you you can't do it. Yeah. That's it. If, That's it. You know. Someone else has done it. You can do it. You just work hard and ask questions and ask more questions and find a support network. And you can't do it alone. That's for sure. But um, yeah, ignore them and then look back and feel, you know, superior that they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> to get that gratification out of it <laughs> you do you do and i mean if if that if that gives you motivation then use it right like okay that person <laughs> told me i couldn't do it and i just want to do it to prove them wrong then that's fine too um, spite is a good motivator <laughs> i've used it i've used spite it does work um <laughs> what they should do um they should do what makes them happy and not well, this goes back to not what they should do and not let other people influence that decision. For example, um, 
when you go into a PhD program, there is kind of this push that everyone should be the same, that you're only successful if you are the number one person in this field of research. You're only successful if you land up at the top institution. You are only successful if you are, you know, X, Y, or Z. That is their definition of success. You figure out what your definition of success is, and that's what you aim for. You aim for your definition of success. You aim for your definition of happiness, and that's what will make you happy. That's my advice. Because you can spend your whole life shooting for someone else's definition of success and happiness, and it's not going to make you happy. And, you know, that's the thing that everyone tells you, like, you know, you want to be the top, you want to be, you know, the one outstanding in your field, but that's not what everybody really wants to do. Some people just want to be able to, you know, achieve in their own way. That's not necessarily going to be, you know, top tier and, you know, million dollar or, you know, it's, yeah, there's so many other ways of defining what makes you successful. And this is something, honestly, that I still struggle with because I see people that I came up with that are in similar fields to me in similar topics, and they're the ones that are being asked to give the talks. They're being asked to, you know, do this or do that. And I'm thinking, but that that should be me, right? Or that could have been me, or what did I do wrong? Why am I not that person? But I just have to take a breath and remind myself that I looked at taking that path very early on. And I decided for myself that that path was not going to make me happy. I did not like what came with that path. That path came with a lot of stress that I didn't want. And that was not the life I wanted to live. I wanted to live the life that I have. So I have to remind myself that I don't have that but not look at what I don't have, but look at what I do have. And yeah. that's what I wanted. And so that is my definition of success. And yeah, because of that, I have been able to do things that I wouldn't be able to do if I had taken that path. Yeah, And, you know, by defining success in my own way, right, I've been able to you know, do this interdisciplinary work that perhaps is not as prestigious in the scientific community, but I think is important. Yeah. And that has value to you. Exactly. And so again, by defining that as my version of success and what makes me happy, then, you know, again, I'm having fun. I think that's my version of success, my version of happiness. And so that is my biggest advice and that is my best advice well and continue to do it until it's not fun definitely (laughs) Um, but also you know just even if you have to write it down find you know figure out what success is to you and stick with it yeah and of course find a, a group of um find a group of people that you can talk to that you can uh complain to that you can ask support from that you can be honest with because 
you need that at every stage of your life. You need mentors. You need to to mentor people. You just you need that network of people. Um, yeah. So I guess there's three bits of advice. <laughs> Definitely. And you know it's because we're raised in such a competitive environment for most of us. It's really hard to not see other people who you know, your contemporaries and go, well, they're more successful than I am, or they've achieved more than I have, or they're further ahead in their plan than I am. And, you know, it's, it's about, yeah, taking that perspective and understanding that, well, they took a different path to you. Mm -hmm. They have a different specialization. They have different passions that drove them down that path, and they were clearly not yours. And right. that is okay. Yeah. And the problem is that the the indicators of success are things that perhaps you don't you, you aren't your indicators of success and that's the problem yeah. right in the scientific community it's how many times have you been referenced how many papers have you published how many talks have you given but yes. you know if that if you're not at a, that sort of institution then you're not going to be successful by those metrics so change yeah. the metrics Yes, because, yeah, you're not going to be in a field where, you know, you're going to be churning out papers, you know, no. dozens of papers a year. You're not going to be looking at, you know, you're not going to be in the circles where this is the environment where you can be no. successful in that way. And, you know, that's that's normal. That's That's fine. And it's also like as you were coming up through your studies, it was, well, this is a thing that I enjoy. I'm also going to have to do things I don't enjoy to get there. Yep. And that's another thing I think that a lot of people forget. Like you measure success by being happy at what you do for every aspect. It's like, no, not necessarily. There are going to be things that you like less. Yes. To be able to do the things that you like more. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, are you yeah. willing to put up? It, the question is, are you willing to put up with the things you dislike to do the thing you like? And if yeah. you like, it's a, it's a balance. It because is. no job is perfect. You're not going to love every single aspect of your job every second of the day. But, yeah. you know, do the pros outweigh the cons? Yeah. And it's, you, know, you keep hearing about a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I, I didn't like this, therefore I quit, even though it was the job that I liked. It's like, well, okay, that's that's your choice. But, you know, you're it's a unicorn. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a unicorn. Well, thank you so much, Shelley, for this. This has been such an amazing conversation. I thank you, Michelle. So it was much. so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. And just learned so much. And yeah, it's nuclear science is everywhere. And it's everywhere. you really need to take that into account when you're considering all the stuff that we do. It's very cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So if people would like to learn more about what you do or reach out, how can they do that? The easiest way to contact me, I guess, is to go to our webpage for the podcast, which is mynuclearlife.com. And uh, the email address there is mynuclearlife at protonmail.com. That's the easiest way to contact me. And feel free to email me with any questions you have. Excellent. Thank you so much. And yeah, My Nuclear Life, excellent podcast Thank with you. so many very cool guests. Very Thank awesome you. and very educational. Thanks. <laughs> Knowing that there's still foundational science that people are trying to work out is pretty fascinating, and it's also great to hear about the other ways that nuclear science impacts our society. 
I'm not a big kaiju or Japanese giant monster genre fan, but as part of Shelley's lecture series, I learned that Godzilla was a metaphor for the atomic bomb. If you're interested in that sort of thing, I highly encourage you to look it up, and I'll have a couple of links in the show notes as well. To learn more about Shelley and what we discuss in the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampard website at steampardshow.com. You can also reach out to Shelley through her podcast, My Nuclear Life, at mynuclearlife.com. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.